This is Open Mic Life. Let's go! Welcome to this week's episode. We have a very special guest coming. Welcome back, everybody, to this week's episode of Open Mic Life. Thank you so much for being here and for your continuous support. Last week, there was no new episode because we have observed that there is several new listeners to the podcast, and I wanted to give them the chance to catch up on what we have already released this season and have time to enjoy the episodes. Not on the second place, I hosted an event last week in the weekend called Fashion Forward in Luxembourg for the benefit of a foundation that does work very close to my heart. They rescue homeless animals in Eastern Europe, they nurse them back to health, vaccinate them, make them passports, and they find them their forever homes. The foundation is called Shadow, and I would really like to bring your attention to the work they do, so I'm going to link them to this podcast, and I invite you to support them to see what they're doing, and of course, if you're looking for a pet to consider rescuing and not buying. I would like to thank our kind hosts, Mirador Club, and specifically Carol, the co-owner, who made it possible by hosting us. And I would definitely like to thank my dear friends who took part in the event, who trusted me, and every single person who came to support us, who bought things during the event, and who was promoting the event. Thank you all so much. All this work really makes a difference for the, for the foundation, and I cannot thank you enough for being part of it. On this week's episode, we're talking about academia, about what is life like as a driven young professor in a field of work that can be quite old-fashioned. I met today's guest, Professor Philip Payment, over a decade ago, when I myself was starting out in my bachelor, and I am truly honored to have him as a guest today. The course he was co-teaching, Rhetoric and Democracy, is also one of the main inspirations behind this entire podcast. And last but not least, it's also where I met Haik, who will now share his thoughts on today's topic. So, without further ado... Hike on the mic. Hi, Hike. What up? What up? How is it going? It's uh, it's going well. I think uh, today I saw some snow falling. So that white Christmas that you mentioned a couple <laughs> of weeks earlier might actually be coming. I think so too. It's been snowing you can see my christmas tree in the background well you blurred it but yeah sure <laughs> <laughs> have you been to some christmas markets no not yet you invited me to the one in luxembourg right did i oh <laughs> you're okay. always welcome <laughs> cool cool <laughs> maybe it wasn't you maybe it was someone else i don't know maybe maybe Mm-hmm. <laughs> I feel like as a dude, you just you don't just walk into a Christmas market. You kind of go on a date or something. Yes, I think somebody else invited you. 
Yeah, probably, probably. <laughs> I gotta follow up on that because is it is the one in Luxembourg already open or? It is. It's in oh, full okay, swing. Okay, okay, cool, cool, cool. <laughs> well, um, let me check uh, check my messages later on. Who are we talking to today? Or much much rather said, who are you talking to today? And who well, am I? I'll give you a hint. I'll give you a hint. Okay. I'll just say you talking to me. Oh, that's. Oh, that's a book. I remember that book, actually. Yeah, 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 yeah. That, we had that for rhetoric. Exactly. So today on the podcast is Professor wow. Philip Payman. Oh, wow. Yeah. Holy shit. He taught me, like, as so he, wait, was he a professor when we were no. at uni? <laughs> no. <laughs> so he, when we met him, he was actually yeah. in his second year of his PhD. Okay. So he was helping out in yeah. the course rhetoric so he was definitely not a professor yeah and yeah so okay cool... the you talking to me makes a lot of sense here now right but so what did he do his phd on so his focus is on the law and governance in the anthropocene which is the most recent Wait. era where the global climate is affected by humans so the anthropocene is apparently an era an epoch where our activity has has actively influenced the climate, global exactly. global warming, basically. Yeah, we have really known him since uh, most of his involvement at Tilburg University, about yeah. ten years. He is there. He's a full professor. He's very engaged. We're going to cover the topic of what academia is like nowadays. So working in academia, being part of academia, because when you say professor, you definitely mm -hmm. don't picture Philip Payman, no? No, because he does have a bit of a young face, so to say, right? He, well, he is very young. So that's well, okay. I mean, that's true. That's true. Yeah. Um, I wanted to talk to somebody in academia who is mm -hmm. going to give us the perspective of what is it like for a young person to be in that world and what are the challenges, mm -hmm. what are the benefits, how is it different than how you imagine it? And I was very much looking forward to him being on the podcast, even just to tell him that this course has been an inspiration. Actually, that's something we mentioned earlier, right? So he taught us through the course of rhetoric, which was mainly taught by Willem Wittefein. The way Willem Wittefein was uh, kind of assigning rhetoric to um, practitioners was by assigning to Cicero, right? Who was a statesman, who was a, uh, an advocate of, of, of the people uh, basically a lawyer back in the uh, Roman times, a lawyer and a parliamentarian. And, you know, they, they were all one and the same thing. Um, and so since he is focused much, much less on the history, and I'm uh, talking about uh, Professor Philip Payment, um, he's much more focused on the Anthropocene, which is now. Um, it fits him a bit better, obviously, being the younger professor, right? It's a very contemporary um uh issue matter of fact there is a lot of debate going on right now um even uh, on in the on the political and uh, agenda um so yeah i'm i'm ooh, i'm i'm fired up and ready to go as obama used to quote someone else by the way so yeah do you have any specific questions for him because i want to ask him from the perspective of somebody who hasn't been in academia for mm -hmm. a few years now Mm -hmm. Just to give our listeners this perspective of what it's like. And you have questions to him about uh, life in academia, 
and also about the subject that he's researching. You warned him, right, that we are not politically correct necessarily. So I will I will ask him some some tough questions. So so the thing is, you see like a whole global wave of right wing parties, you know, winning the, the parliaments. Uh, even a couple of weeks ago here in the Netherlands, PVV, the uh, Freedom Party of Geert Wilders, which is known as an extreme right wing party, uh, won the majority vote. And it's often that these type of parties, they kind of, well, they, they kind of deny the Anthropocene as a, a phenomenon, as a given, because they say, yes, sure, the wor- world warms up. Some of them say that it's a natural occurrence that over, you know, thousands of years, there is a heating and there is a, a cooling. Um, so I actually, you know, I want to step into the, the the bad cop's shoes here. Why not? You know, because he's the he's the, the authority. He's studying Anthropocene, which is basically human activity leading to global warming. That's so it it says that human activity actually there is a causal relationship, whereas the right wing parties say no, it's not. It's a natural occurrence. So maybe you'll tap into his own political beliefs with this question. But I'm I'm just wondering. You know, with these parties winning, actually, all over the world, look at Argentina, look at, I don't know, Poland, look at Netherlands. Is humanity taking a step back from taking actually the responsibility in their uh, influence for, uh, in, in climate change? How will this actually impact international laws? I'm assuming that being passionate about your research is one of the key elements of being successful as a researcher. That and also knowing where there is a counterweight, where there is actually a, um, well, not a disregard necessarily, but there is an antagonist, so to say. There is a, a, a kind of a sound coming from, from the opposite, that there, there needs to be some sort of opposition, right? Exactly. Uh, otherwise, it wouldn't have been a problem. We would have recognized the problem. We would have perhaps solved it. And something that I... I, I kept on hearing over the course of the last couple of weeks was that, uh, you know, so there was an investigation uh, by some some institution aligned with, with the Dutch government, and they discovered that an investment of uh, close to like 30 billion euros has led to a slowing of 36 degrees of celsius in global warming Mm -hmm. so apparently we are not that um we are not that impactful trying to turn the tide of global warming no matter how many solar panels how many wind turbines how many uh you know uh, sustainable sources of energy we start using or uh, even with the expensive gas prices right now, and <laughs> we basically typically don't burn too much gas uh, for the heating. I'm just wondering if he believes whether the costs outweigh the benefits, because apparently the benefits is like minuscule. Yeah. Um, and uh, if our current efforts, if they indeed have led to no significant result, and if so how he sees regulatory efforts changing that. Can we actually change global warming by laws?
Hi, Philip. Welcome to Open Mic Life. Hello, welcome. Yeah, thank you. Thank you for having me here. I'm glad to be here with you. I'm not very used to calling you Philip. Do you remember when we met actually? More or less exactly a decade ago, I did one year of liberal arts and sciences. And I think then you were teaching assistant, if I'm not mistaken. Yeah, I know. I was still a PhD student and actually still really right in the middle of it um, in like year two, uh, year three. And I believe that year, now that you say it, it's coming back to me. I was a teaching assistant in the course on rhetoric and democracy in the liberal arts program, filling in for my PhD supervisor at the time, uh, Professor Willem Vitefein. For, he was on a sabbatical that year uh, in, in Venice working on a book. Uh, and so he would usually teach that course. He was also the dean of the liberal arts program at the time. So I stepped in uh, to fill his role. Yeah, I had forgotten that we met there. This course, Rhetoric and Democracy, is one of the biggest inspirations behind this podcast. I have a co-host, Hike. When we were discussing this and to start a podcast, the inspiration behind the two of us doing it together was that him and I have more often than not had conflicting views on most subject matters that we would discuss, but we would always find a way to listen to each other and to be respectful of the other's opinion. We've always enjoyed this conversation and the art of conversation. And when we started talking about the podcast, we really went back to this class. Oh, that's very cool to hear about the, the legacy of that course. Can you tell to our listeners who you are, what you do, what has been your path so far? Yeah, so since uh, the 1st of September this year, my, my new title, my latest title is the Professor of Law and Governance in the Anthropocene. Um, I've been at Tilburg University since 2011, since the autumn of 2011. I, I first started there as a PhD researcher. Um, and worked my way up uh, as an assistant and associate professor, now a full professor. Um, I guess the two of us know each other more. I was, I mean, I was a lecturer in your courses. I was a PhD researcher at first, and then later an associate or assistant professor. Also, a little bit about your background. Before you went into academia, what did you do? Where do you come yeah. from? Yeah, no, that's a good question. I, so I grew up in the United States, in Minnesota. Uh, and I moved to the Netherlands when I was 18 uh, for studies. And I went to study. Actually, we have that in common. I started uh, as a liberal arts student at the University College. I didn't Utah. know that. And after finishing, I was a, a law major uh, there. And after finishing the um, liberal arts program, I enrolled in an LOM uh, at Utrecht in public international law. I was also taking some courses in Dutch law at the time and gave myself a year to figure out if I wanted to pursue civil effect and go into legal practice. And in that year, I decided that that's not what I wanted to do. I wanted to go and into research. civil effect is like doing the bar in your system yeah. to be yeah, able exactly. to practice law in the Netherlands. Yeah, being, yeah. Being, a qualified, being a qualified lawyer in, a, in the Dutch jurisdiction. And I decided not to do that. I decided to instead go into, into research. After that one-year LLM, I uh, entered into a legal research master's in Oxford, applied for PhD positions, mm -hmm. got one in Tilburg, and have been there since. I'm really wondering about what was the moment when you decided to go fully into academia? Yeah, in a uh, international uh, criminal law and procedure course, which was really taught in a practitioner's mode. Our lecturer was, had come straight out of uh, 
uh, a job working for one of the international criminal courts in The Hague, was really a practitioner uh, and taught that way. I found it a very polarizing class. And I mean, it was, it was very educational. I learned a ton from it. I realized in that, that I was more interested in kind of conceptual questions than I was in applied legal work. Mm-hmm. So I think it was, it was probably in that course. Among the student body, we could see that you really were where you wanted to be. So <laughs> it could, it always came across that you enjoyed what you do and that you enjoyed teaching. I was hoping for such a uh, clear answer of when you found out that you wanted to do academia, because I think that when you can tell that somebody really enjoys what they do, there is usually a moment when they decided it's not always easy and it was definitely i think when you were my student was um among some of the more crazy years of my life with really um long working weeks and uh yeah just really <laughs> lengthy to-do lists our department is being run really well right now we have a very energetic uh young um team of of colleagues for people who are really out of academia I'm not sure that they grasp the essentials of the day-to-day life of being a researcher, being dedicated to science in that way. What does it look like for a young person to work in academia today? Because when you hear Professor Philip Payman, they're not going to imagine you, you know, (laughs) they're going to imagine somebody much older. And I want to talk about the business side of science uh no it's, it's a really good question and i guess i should i should preface by saying that my only experience is in law faculties and that the experience of academia as a as a you know industry sector is going to be really different if you're working in you know the hard sciences or medical sciences and things like that so each each of these faculties each of these areas of um of research and education have very, very different organizations and kind of pressures and dynamics And also my experience is, is in Europe, right? And particularly in the Netherlands. See, um, there is the lawyer in you. All of these. Yeah. <laughs> Putting all the, all the disclaimers. <laughs> yeah, all the disclaimers are there. Yeah. I'm not going to edit any of them out, I promise. <laughs> <laughs> um, and so, yeah, where to begin? Uh, okay, so I think a lot, of, a lot of listeners would be familiar with the phrase publish or perish. Uh, so the idea that if you're not publishing and publishing successfully in high-ranked um, peer-reviewed Uh, journals, you're not going to make progress in academia and you'll kind of quickly come to an exit uh, sign. And that is the case in legal research as well. I mean, there's a need to be actively engaged in in publishing. Um, and I think after, so I'm now uh, eight years at the uh, post-PhD at this point, and I start to really realize that publishing kind of moves from, you know, first it's kind of opportunistic. You're writing some papers and the high quality ones you, you send out to high quality academic journals, peer reviewed journals, but you're also getting every once in a while some requests for um, submitting a chapter to a book or putting an entry in an encyclopedia, that kind of thing. Uh, and the more senior you get those requests for kind of secondary things are um, more and more And you have to be much more careful about guarding your time and continuing to prioritize working on the, the top, the top of the line, you know, top quality stuff. Grants, research grants is a really big issue. So I'm one of the reasons why my life is uh, much calmer and, and satisfying right now is that I got a very large personal research grant 
grant from the European Research Council, what's called a starter grant. So it's a, available to researchers who are, I think, three to seven years out of their, their PhD. It's one and a half million euros over five years. And it allows me to uh, hire a, a research team to work with me. So I've, I've hired uh, two postdocs and a PhD researcher. Uh, and together, the four of us are working on kind of doctrinal and sociolegal uh, project about transnational networks of strategic litigators working in climate and environmental law. That brings in a huge revenue for the law school. Uh, it protects my time. It means that I'm actually not teaching any of the courses that I taught you in. Mm -hmm. um, and other people have, have taken up that role. Um, it's also, a, a, you know, helped me um, have some influence in uh, colleagues who are being hired in the law school, uh, kind of giving shape to the the other colleagues around me. Uh, which is nice. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> but it really, I think the story, and thank you for being so open about everything, uh, sheds a lot of light on uh, the things that you have to think about. And when do you actually get the freedom to work with who you want, how you want to research what is actually your interest? And you touched upon the fact that now you don't teach these courses. How How much do you like teaching itself? And has it been something that you more or less had to do in order to be able to research? No, I, I like teaching a lot. Um, it was very, it's a very meaningful part of the job for me. I have some questions actually from Hike to you, and they're focused on your research. With the current global wave of right-wing parties winning majority votes, is humanity taking a step back from taking responsibility of their climate footprint and how Will this impact international laws, in your opinion? Yeah, it's a good question. And um, yeah, I was, I was, of course, troubled by the, we're, we're talking now um, about a week and a half after yeah. um, the PVB uh, kind of far right uh, political party um, won the largest share of votes in the Dutch elections. And Kirk Wilders, the leader of that party, has in their official party program has kind of stated uh, that climate change is not a problem that the Netherlands should be trying to solve. Uh, so he doesn't deny that climate change is a is a phenomena and is mm -hmm. something that is going to pose problems. But his party's um, kind of ideology around climate change is that the Netherlands is comparatively very well um, suited to adapting to a changing climate. Um, and so it should not be trying to be a leader in mitigating emissions um, and instead should just focus on developing technologies to help it, the, the country and its economy persist in, in adapting to climate change. Which is um, quite contrary to what has been happening until now. Yeah, it's, yeah, um, it's, it's troubling. I mean, I think the last five or six years, we've seen center and center-right parties and the, the VVD, the the, rainy, the party that has been in, in power uh, for the last 12 or 13 years, really shift to a much more pro kind of climate action policy agenda. Is it yeah, discomforting? Yeah, sure. Um, uh, you know, I've heard some call, call, colleagues say, well, you know, on the one hand, Builders is right. It is only, um, you know, less than half a percent of global emissions every year. So, the worst damage he can have is not that large. So I think what we're going to see is very little climate action in the next two, three, four years, which makes it all the more difficult to then achieve the 2030 um, reduction targets, uh, more expensive. 
and on a more global level, there has been definitely a wave of right-wing parties winning, for most of which putting in climate actions isn't necessarily a priority. Do you think that this can have an effect on international law so quickly until we hopefully wait out this wave? The most kind of direct <clears throat> action that they could take would be to uh, step out of the Paris Agreement, right? I think, though, we're at a point, and it's a bit of a, you know, we're coming up to a pivot point here where average global warming right now is, I think, somewhere around 1.3 degrees Celsius. Mm -hmm. The Paris Agreement commits uh, signatories to um, esteem to limit warming to 1.5 degrees Celsius. Um, because we know that at 1.5 degrees, we're going to be already be experiencing considerable negative consequences from, from uh, global warming. That's disheartening, right? Because uh, it, it seems really quite likely that that's impossible to, to meet this, this threshold unless there's incredibly urgent climate action. On the other hand, uh, it also, kind of from a regulatory point of view, it also means that private actors, powerful private actors, banks, financial institutions, insurance companies, um, oil and gas companies for that matter, are going to begin to experience are already experiencing negative consequences of climate change to their to their businesses right uh and so in some ways it's, it's unavoidable. can you give an example right? perhaps uh, for people who are not too familiar with that you can think of the, the devastation that forest fires causes or flash floods to infrastructure and mm -hmm. to investment holdings you know while we might see it in the state level kind of increasing dissatisfaction with international climate law mm -hmm. on the other hand we're seeing increasingly more action and awareness in the private sector. You know, we have a lot of discussions around uh, cryptocurrencies and um, these kinds of technologies and technological applications. I have some colleagues who are very optimistic about the role that cryptocurrencies can have. Um, I myself tend to be quite, quite cynical about the, the environmental impact that the computing Can processes have. Yeah. What is your opinion of it and how would you say would okay. it have more of an impact? Yeah, no, I mean, I'm I'm probably you know not doing justice to so I'm I, I, I'm engaging mostly with a group called the Sovereign Nature Initiative, um, which I believe is based in Amsterdam, and they are experimenting with different ways to um, allow or facilitate nature, you know, more than human uh, entities to raise its own capital, by instance, through for instance, by making NFTs of itself and uh, selling them to raise capital, which could then be invested in conservation or nature restoration projects, for instance, and doing this all through a kind of crypto um, platform. Yeah, I, I tend to be really concerned with uh, the growing electricity demands that come with the computing infrastructure behind crypto and other kind of ledger-based technologies. And far, far too often, we forget that energy efficiency and in reduction in energy consumption is kind of equally important as the transition to renewable energy sources. Are there any myths that you want to debunk about academia? Like, for example, what I told you before that when I say I'm interviewing Professor Philip Payman today, people don't imagine you and I'll put a picture of you on Instagram <laughs> so right. they have a visual. <laughs> yeah, so, so some myths of academia. Um, I Yeah, I mean, I think um, one of the myths of academia is that we're all kind of like old tweed jacket wearing, gray haired, uh, recluse hermits that don't really want to socialize with other people and 
it's also an incredibly social community at times. Um, it can be very young. Right? We have a lot of young colleagues, a lot of colleagues who don't stick in academia. There's a lot, I mean, I think another myth is that there's a lot of kind of weird, egotistical uh, people in academia. Yeah, that's true. That's true. I mean, you it it's unlike other sectors that are defined by offering successful products in a marketplace, we're defined by offering successful services and very particular type of services, which is um, education and research. And both of those are um, successes, at least partially driven by people who don't think the same way that the majority of people in their industry do, right? Because you, if you're going to pioneer and you're going to be innovative and you're going to, you know, unturn, overturn stones or rocks that other people have overlooked, you have to be, you have to think at times differently than how, um, how the kind of majority does in, in your area of practice and research. Um, and that can lead to, you know, that can lead to egos, certainly. I mean, there are a lot of people who really have career-long projects, basically, right? I mean, particular frameworks of thinking or of doing analysis that they really believe in quite strongly and have, have, have driven their entire careers. Um, and so it's um, confronting, of course, when people disagree with that in some way. Like for me, it it is still a job uh, and it's a job that's pretty important to my identity, I think, but it is still a job. But something that you said uh, before is that you, you're an amicable person. You believe in the things that you research. So I'm wondering, uh, these all seem like values that are important to you. And are there some values that you that have been persistent throughout your career or that you have been implementing in your work throughout that you think will stick with you or some that you thought were important in the beginning and then not so much yeah i think um particularly around the this this research community that we we set up starting in 2019 around constitutionalizing in the anthropocene one of the one of the values that um really directed my own work in that and, and a few of my my close colleagues was that we would um that we wouldn't we wouldn't try to agree on kind of a common set of values or concerns that would dominate the research but really only agree on common sets of questions and that's important in this area of research because there's a there is a lot of kind of um you might say like school formation around different um approaches or ideologies uh of, of the role that law does or ought to play in governing uh you know climate and environmental uh issues some of them are really controversial right i mean things like geoengineering is super controversial uh because it's on the one hand offers this kind of techno utopian hope that maybe we don't actually have to radically change our lives um if there is some technology out there but there's also like a really problematic concentration of power in terms of who would be able to make that decision on what terms and what happens if it doesn't work or it goes wrong. And so you see some research communities that are really trying to, you know, basically um, blacklist projects about global, about geoengineering and say, look, there's no space for that kind of discourse or scholarship um, in this field. It shouldn't even be floated as a realistic idea. Um, there are others who kind of subscribe to it as you know, indeed, an absolutely essential um, approach. And I think 
we've taken a really ambiguous position and uh, really instead focus on asking questions about them rather than trying to identify projects that either have to be uh, on the agenda or can't be on the agenda. Um, and that's, I think that's, uh, it's really healthy, especially in, in the academic context to try to avoid this kind of like, um, you know, formation of a particular school of thought among your close colleagues. Um, although it can be really effective, right? If you all kind of agree on a series of baseline um, uh, assumptions and, and methods and stuff, uh, you can, you know. And doesn't this feed a little bit into this academic, um, you know, pride when you only are together with people of the same school of thought because you feed each other this, yeah. yes, this is the greatest. Yes, this is what we're supposed to be doing. So yeah. I think it's in a way diligence, probably one of the values that you're implementing there. But it's difficult because, you know, these are these are colleagues that you work with for a number of years and uh, it's, it's a, you know, it's delicate to, to disagree, at least and even at times fundamentally disagree with colleagues, but still be very collegial and, um, and not to just disagree on like small things, but really on like, you know, substantive uh, decisions in their research projects. So, but yeah, fostering uh, an environment where that's possible. To me, that's a, a big value. And yeah. sometimes it requires to take a step back and make sure that everybody's seeing the big picture, you know? Yeah. And I guess that's a bit twofold. Like on the one hand, the big picture is, you know, we want to, we want to be that kind of critical um check on each other's work to improve the quality of it, um, not to ensure that we all are achieving consensus, but that at least the questions have been asked and best attempts at answering them have been given. Um, but also the bigger picture that, uh, you know, at the end of the day, this is research, uh, in, in, this, this is a job, and uh, we all go home at the end of the day to our, our families and homes and uh, yeah, we, you know, we can't, we shouldn't pretend like we are going to, um, that we are uniquely uh, capable of changing the world with our research. Um, you know, we're participating in a very large uh, academic um, community world. around yeah. the world, and we're just a very small set of voices in that, so. And that, that leads me to a question that I've asked most of our guests. When you say, uh, you have said a couple of times, it's a job. I think it's a very healthy thing to say, because I think that academia, you know, we've touched upon how people take it so seriously, people who work in it as they should, you know, everybody should be invested in what they do. But how do you make boundaries for yourself in order to be, this is a job, this is, you know, how do you check out mentally to make sure you protect yourself? Yeah, that's good. Um, <laughs> good question. Um, I'm open to suggestions still too. Um, having a child's been helpful because um, you just, I mean, there are many hours of the day that you're just not available. So, but this I think is more the, concretely- This the general suggestion you give to people, have a child. Have a child yeah. <laughs> um, but uh, I mean, there are some small things that I think are really powerful. So I, I've never downloaded, um, I've never downloaded the, the Outlook app on my phone and my like mail app is not linked to my work email. Mm -hmm. So if I want to check my email on my phone, my work email, I really have to like go into my browser and type in, you know, outlook.owa.com and log in through there with the two-step verification. And it's it's a bit of a pain in the book, a pain in the ass. Um, 
so I don't do it very often, <laughs> uh, which means that I'm not kind of getting email um, push notifications throughout the day and the weekends or in the evenings. And um, yeah, that's fine. I think we need to, I, you know, I often kind of think back to like, what would very mundane things that we do? Like if I'm going to organize a, a half day workshop around a, a topic, Sometimes, I mean, it's uh, there are certainly half day events that I've organized where there've been more than a hundred emails sent in the lead up to that or to that event, right? And that seems ridiculously inefficient and um, time consuming. Uh, and sometimes I think back, like, what would it have been like to organize this in 1985, right? And someone would have been typing up on a typewriter, a letter to a colleague or a group of colleagues and putting it in the mail and mailing it to them. And you can't do that a hundred times. It's certainly not for a half day, right? So you, you're a bit more intentional about how much information you put forward the first time. And I think that people probably were a bit less picky about giving feedback on, on every single detail. Uh, and they were a bit more laid back about, um, you know, letting things, letting things take shape as they would. Uh, and that's something I think we've lost a bit with, we're, we're so connected um, because of technology and our work, kind of hyper-communicative um, that I think we've become a little bit too concerned with details at times, certainly around like, I mean, just pragmatic details like that. Yeah. Um, and that, yeah, there's a lot to be had to just, you know, be a bit more laissez-faire on these things um, mm-hmm. and save that time. You know, it's a it's a demanding job, certainly, and it's been. I mean, I know you you, you talk quite a bit about kind of different industry uh, sectors in, on the podcast. Um, you know, it's a job that we struggle to hold people in because, basically, by definition, everyone at the law school could be working in legal practice of different sorts, um, and oftentimes those jobs are much more attractive than working in academia, in part because of the time commitments um, that we're asking. And then compare it to the compensation that that they offer, and then you know you do crazy things like I'm, I've been the convening uh, editor of a, of a journal, Transnational Legal Theory, for you know, the last four four or five years, um, and that's I mean that's all evenings and weekends, uh, and it's with colleagues in the UK and Turkey, Canada. So meeting is difficult. Um, we meet online, but almost always in the evening, my time, uh, uh, it takes a lot of time, but I try to see these commitments as, you know, uh, temporary commitments that, uh, I say, well, I'm going to do this for two years, see how it goes, Mm -hmm. maybe do it for another four years and then pass it on to someone else. And I'm learning a lot along the way, hopefully, um, having, making a contribution to, the scholarly community it's, this is what i mean it's the consequence of being a curious individual is to have your curiosity i love that i love that yeah. the consequence of being a curious individual i yeah. think this is what i'm going to title oh, the, <laughs> the episode no i love i love that i love that and i love that you also g- gave super practical advice you know just don't have your outlook app on your phone you have to log in you have a two-factor authenticator like it's very good practical advice which is not like the deepest thing but at the end it's exactly what needs to be done sometimes um often in my line of work there is 
fear of becoming of a generalist where you are all over the place for a few years and it's hard to focus on one area. So then you go and do a PhD to be considered an expert. I just want you to give like two, three points of advice of when to do it, when not to do it. It's uh, a very good question. Um, I think, I, I do think that like the motivation behind pursue a PhD is probably the most important factor about success in a PhD. I would never really uh, encourage someone to to engage and embark in the PhD process if they're not really kind of personally intrinsically interested in a question that they're that they're willing to devote four or five years to to trying to answer. And by that, I also mean really it's a question, not a not a topic or a, you know a talking point that they want to kind of further develop, but really a question. So a curiosity, a, something that they genuinely do not know the answer to. And they believe that we need to know the answer to it for some for some reason, right? It is especially being a PhD researcher is a really it's got to be the most kind of individualizing existence that that you can have. Certainly in, in the legal field, you're basically spending years in the early stages, probably 30 hours a day, just reading, taking notes, doing some writing, almost exclusively individually, right? That can be very isolating. Certainly if you don't know why you're asking the question that you're asking, you have to find a way to be super interested in the outcome without without kind of, you know, necessarily saying, well, it has to lead one way or the other, right? Like personally, what I'm really interested in, I'm, I'm about to, to kind of turn in my project right now and start engaging in field work and um, doing a bunch of interviews with attorneys working um, on climate cases around the world um, in different formats, human rights-based cases, corporate uh, cases, like shareholder kind of um, actions. Um, and I'm super interested in talking uh, and listening to uh, their accounts of how they built their cases, um, the decisions that were challenging in it, how they view their work in connection to ongoing litigation in other jurisdictions and peers that they identify with or they've learned from or they've exchanged with working in other jurisdictions. So I'm super excited about that. I think it, the grant that has you know, made this all possible, came out of discussions I had over beers and over dinner with litigators in Toronto and in London and you know, kind of in the evenings at conferences and stuff. And I find that, you know, you can spend weeks and weeks reading books and journal articles, but you can learn so much more from conversations with people who are really engaged in the practice that, you, um, that, you're, that you're conducting research on. Bringing uh, us so back to our topic of rhetoric. Yeah, so I'm, su I'm super excited to uh, to um, to be in the field doing that kind of uh, that kind of work for the next um, year or so. Um, so. You would have to come back after that and tell us more about how it went. Yes, indeed, indeed. Well, I mean, part part of it's going to come out in uh, in my publications, but I'd be happy to come back and some um, of the background stories. Yeah, <laughs> um, that's wonderful. Uh, yeah, that's probably that's probably the big the big thing on the horizon that I'm looking forward to. That's so nice. Well, thank you so much for being on. You're very welcome. Thank you for having me. It was a pleasure to catch up. And I really enjoyed our conversation. Me too. We'll talk very soon again.
Thank you for tuning in. See you next week on Open Mic Life.